Welcome to another Macquarie Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. Welcome to the onliners. I hope you're comfortable and warm at home in your hoodies. Well, tomorrow marks 41 years of married bliss with my magnificent service director wife, Sue. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, she married at 10? Goodness gracious. No, 19, ripe age, good. I thought things would be different when I turned 60. They're not. I'm still living the dream. It's so good. Man, we've done a lot in 41 years. We have raised some spectacular kids. We have worked hard, we've travelled hard, and we've retired harder, which is really good-ish. Retired-ish. <laughs> and I'll guarantee that being maintained or strengthened in my face is amongst all of that 41 years. But if I'm honest, there have been some times when, to my astonishment, I started to think that perhaps God has let me down. Or that I was on his extreme periphery at that particular point. And I'm sure you've experienced times like that. Those times when, if you shared them, you would probably sound like, where are you, God? You did the best job raising your kids. You believed that God's promise in Proverbs 22 verse 6 was for you, that he would not depart from you and that your kids would not depart from him. But they have. <laughs> They've gone their own way and they are far from God. And it feels a little like God has not kept his word. Or maybe you've given faithfully over the years, generous to God's work, and you believed in God's promise in 2 Corinthians 9 that in all things at all times, he would provide all that you need. But right now, the squeeze is on, and you're feeling from week to week, it doesn't seem like he's keeping his promise. Or perhaps you have prayed deeply about changing jobs. And you've handed it over to God because you don't want to make a mistake on big things like that. And you didn't want to lean on your own understanding. And you needed for your path to be set straight as he said it would be. Proverbs 3. So you made the change. And it hasn't worked out. It's absolute misery. And again, you're feeling like God has let you down. Well, it seems that that particular feeling is fairly common as we grapple to understand God's plan for our life. Those feelings were certainly happening in the minds of the first century Christians too. And that's one of the great reasons that Paul sends this long and really detailed letter to the church in Rome, and particularly to the Jewish Christians at that time. See, for them, God had made some spectacular 
spectacular promises. Promises of salvation, promises of blessing, promises of spiritual leadership among the nations. But here they are. <laughs> the nation of Israel as a whole, having largely rejected their Messiah. The only one who could possibly fulfill those blessings. And they're wondering, so what's happened to Israel? Is God going to cancel his promises to his people? Will he fail to keep his word? Is he finished with us? And as we continue this morning on our journey through Romans, we come to chapter 11. And that's where Paul's, Paul's question right off the bat in chapter 11, verse 1, is, I ask you, did God reject his people? And he lets that sit for a moment. And then we hear that characteristic, strong negative that Paul often gives. And he says, certainly not. And chapter 11 becomes this beautiful and lengthy explanation of his answer. This chapter is basically about Israel's future. And just to put our journey through Romans in context... Chapter 9 was about her past. Chapter 10 was about her present. And then we turn a corner. And in chapter 11, he begins to paint a picture of her future and what that looks like. And there's a strong theme of restoration, which was so needed, in chapter 12. And I'm going to look at that today. And it really talks about what our future should look like. Just to refresh our setting, because this is so important, you might remember that in my introduction to Romans, that the Jewish Christians had been expelled from Rome along with all of the Jews, all gone, when they ticked off Emperor Claudius. And the home churches in Rome flourished, but they became predominantly Gentile, non-Jewish. And at this point in around AD 57, the Jews are trickling back into Rome after the emperors died. And they're coming back to the home churches and they're saying, what? What is this? What has changed? This is very different. And they immediately start questioning those promises that God had made about the Jewish nation and comparing those promises to where they might fit into this new paradigm of what church looks like because it was very different from when they left. And you'll see that Paul uses the word remnant in chapter 5. Verse 5, I should say, of this chapter. A remnant of cloth. I know this because I'm a home economics major. A remnant of cloth is a small piece that's left over at the end of the bolt. When most of it is gone, it's just that last little strip. And a remnant of people is that small remaining number. And what Paul is trying to explain to them here is that God has allowed his people, the Jews, to largely reject their Messiah. The ones who didn't, those Jewish Christians, they're the remnant. Who were perhaps feeling that God has turned his back on them. 
And Paul wants them to be encouraged. And he wants to tell them that God has kept his promise by saving just a small number of Jews who have come to him by faith. Not by works, not by the law, not by anything else, but by faith. And in verse 7, Paul says, What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did. But the others are hardened. Now that word hardened is something I've really come to notice amongst my fellow Christians. Because it's like rot that sets into timber. And it eats away at the integrity of your faith until it fails when any load is placed on it. And I think it begins with those feelings that perhaps God is not keeping up his end of the bargain. And when the expectation doesn't match the reality, which so often it doesn't in our life, they become hardened towards God and gradually they refuse to believe. And so often, as we see, they walk away. But I think it's important for us to understand that people don't refuse to believe because they are hardened. They are hardened because they refuse to believe. So when we choose to reject God's plans or reject his grace or doubt his promises or fail to see him at work in our lives, he allows us to go our own way. He doesn't wake up to yourself. He allows us to go our own way. And eventually, if we go far enough, what he does is he acknowledges our disbelief. I can remember when Sue and I made the decision to step out of ministry some years back. And we eventually landed here at Macquarie Life. Really good. And I have to be honest with you, for a few years, I had some doubt about God's faithfulness. I had some doubt about his plans because I thought that ministry was where he wanted me to be. But he clearly, very clearly said to me, that season has ended and I've got something other, something new for you. But I wasn't seeing the new. <laughs> and I started to doubt his voice that had so subtly sent me that way and closed the door on ministry. But now, when I look back over five years, wow, has God kept his promise all along? I think sometimes our picture of new is grander. It is bigger but what I realized what that was that my new was intimate it was relational it was pastoral and it was practical and it's much more fulfilling than anything I could have imagined and even though I couldn't see it initially I'm so confident 
that God will never let us down. And he is always faithful to his word. I heard this fantastic quote watching a movie this week, and it's really interesting because Sue and I both heard it, and we both made a note of it, but it was only last night in the spa that we said, do you remember that quote? And it was by Kierkegaard, and he made this statement. It was great. He said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forward. Isn't that great? When you're over here, you can say, ah, I see that. Yeah. But you've got to move forward. What is it that you might be doubting him in now? Look back. See those promises. Sometimes it may look like God has let you down, but let me reassure you, he's still at work. And my encouragement is for you not, and to protect yourself, to not become hardened. In verse 11, Paul makes this clangor of a statement. He says, because of their transgressions, that's the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. What I love about the whole context of these Jewish Christians gradually trickling back into Rome and they're wondering what the heck has happened while they've been gone is that all along God has anticipated that when those people returned to Rome they were going to see these Gentile Christians and they would see something that makes them think and see Christianity in a whole new light and it will make them jealous. They're going to see peace and joy, caring for one another, a clear meaning in the purpose for life, freedom from forgiveness of sins, and a confident assurance of eternity in heaven. And when they see that, they're going to go, how come they have that and we don't? The old, I want what they're having. And as a result, they're going to come to a deeper understanding and a trust in Jesus Christ as their saviour. That was the plan all along. Does anybody get jealous of your life? (laughs) Can you think of anyone who has gotten jealous because of your relationship with Jesus? Does that say something about us? I'm afraid there's little to get jealous about in the lives of some professing Christians these days. And the media just loves it. And the average Joe looks at what's reported on the media and they say the old line, well, if that's what Christianity can do for you, I don't need it. I don't want it. But thank God that there are believers who are still here and are still alive that are vibrant whose lives attract the lost to Jesus. There are still some gems around. And there are some right here in our church. I won't ask you to stand. You know who you are. (laughs) Paul goes on to finish chapter 11 with a beautiful metaphor of the olive tree, which has always been representative of the place of blessing and privilege for the people of God. Back a few years, I hope this picture comes up. Oh, there it is. 
Sue and I were fortunate enough to travel through the Holy Land. And without a doubt, one of my favourite places was just to sit in the Garden of Gethsemane, which contains these incredible ancient olive trees that were around at the time that Jesus sat in that garden. Looking at that gnarled and misshapen trunk on branches on those trees, it gives you a beautiful understanding of Paul's explanation here in chapter 11. Paul explains that the roots of the tree is the covenant that God made with Abraham, which he received by faith. The branches, many of them snapped off, are the Jewish people as a whole who rejected God and rejected salvation. The wild olive branches that were grafted into that trunk are all the Gentiles and non-believers. That includes you and I. That God has grafted into the place of blessing. So when you look at those amazing olive trees and you see the twists and the offshoots and the deformed shape, can you see your graft in that tree? Can you see, there, that's where I became rooted and look how well that limb's gone. Well, you're starting to feel like it's getting a bit rickety and about to be snapped off. Paul beautifully reminds us that this all happens by grace. And as he says in Romans 11:6, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. Because if it were, then grace would no longer be grace. And so after 11 chapters of Paul describing God's favour to us and why we might be feeling a little bit unsettled, it's like he turns to us and he said so. Very kindly, he says it. After all that, will you do me a favour? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He doesn't demand it. He doesn't expect it. But he gently urges and encourages us. In light of all of this new understanding that you have about God and how he's always had your best interests at mind, he's never forgotten you, he's never turned his back on you, and you are now grafted into him and you're growing really well, he urges us. Won't you do me a favour that God is asking you to do and live the life that he wants you to live he's given you everything you need so do him a favor and be a living sacrifice because he needs you to be after 11 chapters of about who we are what we have in Christ Paul's going to talk about what that all should look like in our lives and how we are to love and to serve God and how we're meant to love and serve one another in the body of Christ. 
And he begins by looking at spiritual gifts. Now, when our girls were younger, I recall how they would open their presents at Christmas time. They would just tear off the paper, much to Sue's frustration because she's a paper saver. <laughs> Three years out of wrapping, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And when they would reach the present, there was this momentary, oh, wow, that's just what I wanted. Thank you. Put the present aside. Next. Where is the next one? Then when we would begin to clean up the mess and they would gather their newly acquired treasures to themselves and they'd begin to play with them. And inevitably, you would notice that some of the, girl, some of the gifts the girls got they didn't play with much at all. In fact, some hardly got used at all. They just sat there. And obviously, that wasn't what they really wanted or appreciated. And it would be sad at that time, because I know how much effort Sue puts into buying presents for me. She bought me a boat yesterday for Father's Day. <laughs> so I would sit down with the kids. And I would pick up that one that not playing with and say, hey, what about this one? It's pretty special. Why don't you have a little bit of a play with that one? But it took some coaxing to get them to do that. I wonder if God doesn't feel the same way about us. He's given us these wonderful gifts. And some of us have ripped off the paper and looked at the gift and thought, oh, wow, thank you and then put it over there and not even used it. We don't generally give our kids the same gift either, do we? Because they are each unique. They have different interests, different abilities, and God doesn't give every believer the same gifts either. Romans 12, 4-6a. For just as each one of us for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each of the members belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Now, spiritual gifts is a whole series on its own. But for today, just let's address a couple of the ideas that Paul has. Some of, the some of the Christians would think, some of us Christians would think, that you can pick and choose certain gifts. But that's not what God's Word says. Not all members have the same function. Each of us has different gifts. And that's important for us. Because I'm convinced that so many of us burn out and begin that process of hardening because we're trying to be something that we're not. Trying to do things that we are not gifted in. You might be trying to teach kids church when God has gifted them to care for the sick and the lonely. They may be trying to join the music team where really God's gifted them to make coffee in the barista cafe and encourage people one-on-one -on -one as they hand them a coffee. Guys, we need to be who we are. Do what God has gifted us to do. But take note, Paul doesn't 
go. And what he does is he emphasizes the do. Do seek opportunities to use the gift that you have. Be who you are. Reading on in chapter 12, we start to get a feel for the audience that Paul is appealing to. Sue was sharing with me this week that she'd listened to a Joyce Myers talk. Not my thing. But Joyce made this great statement that so many Christians today are dating Jesus. They like to take him out on Sunday. Smile, act lovely but don't have much to do with them at all during the week. We need to be committed. In chapter 12 of Romans, Paul is addressing that same lack of commitment. And he calls out those who love in the abstract and not in the concrete. People who claim to love those around them, but who really don't. Their love's counterfeit, it's fake. They're Christians, so they have to maintain an outward appearance of love for others. But it only goes skin deep. They paint on a smile and they try to appear friendly, but it's not sincere. And then finally Paul spells out what committed love should look like for each of us. He even gives us a list, because we all love a list. Let's see how you're traveling. We're not talking about all of these. This is just for your assessment of where you're at. First one, true love accentuates the positive without ignoring the negative. It fosters an affectionate spirit. It keeps on keeping on. It doesn't get tired, ever. It identifies and ministers to others' needs. It seeks the best for those who harm us and actually seeks peace, not to try and continue things. It shares the joy of others and it sits with them in the sorrows. It tries to live in harmony with those around them. It avoids a proud and haughty spirit and tries to stay humble. Church, I have a dream. My dream is that I am a genuinely nice person. Kind, considerate, thoughtful, sympathetic, accepting and tolerant, patient, helpful, friendly, generous, forgiving, humble and totally unselfish. It's a long dream. I dream that I'm able to reach out and minister lovingly to people who, people who don't like me, <laughs> with more concern about their needs than my own feelings. I dream that I don't have any hard feelings towards the people who have hurt me, and there's been a few, and have no desire for them to get what's coming to them but actually long to see God's blessing on their lives. I dream that I'm able to feel genuinely happy 
when one of my peers gets more honour than me. Especially when it's honour that, that I possibly deserve. I dream that I can look for areas of agreement with people who think radically different to me rather than try to prove that I'm right and they're wrong. I dream that I can look at the lowest ranking human being and not feel the slightest bit of superiority to them, but see them as one created in the image of God and realise that they can make such a valuable contribution to me. Do you know what? That's an impossible dream. I'm so far from that high and lofty ideal that I'm starting to feel like I'll never get near it. But that's, goal. that's God's goal in my life. These are the very things that the Apostle Paul says should characterise my life because that's what a true Christ-like believer that's what their love looks like. It may be an impossible dream, but thanks to the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus, we don't have to do it on our own. Two things Jesus asked of us. Love God, love him deeply, and love people. The more we learn about God's love for us, the more we want to be like him and the easier that love for people becomes. And these things that Paul talks about become just a part of who we are. But without the grace of God, we wouldn't stand a chance. So it might be a dream in progress, but it's a dream worth bringing towards reality. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit macroylifechurch.com.au.